Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, as Jim mentioned earlier in the service, our, our children are going to stay with us today. But if you do have uh, kids that are in the, the nursery toddler area uh, life stage, you can, uh, nursery and toddlers is still open, so you may uh, bring your children along. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, we, we stand in the last Sunday of 2018. Can't believe that this year has, has flown by so quickly already. Uh, and we're still in Christmas, so, so Merry Christmas. Um, we, all throughout this, this month of December, we have been going through a, a sermon series called The Names of Jesus, where we have been looking through various names and titles that our Lord and Savior has, has been called uh, throughout the New Testament. And today we land here in the Gospel of John, and uh, namely with this, this title of the King of Israel. Uh, Jim has said, primed the pump pretty well for me uh, before I got up here as we think about uh, this theme of, of kingship and what it means that Christ was called the King of Israel, particularly here uh, in this gospel. So let me read it for you, and as, is, as custom in our church afterwards, I will lead us with um, the word, this is the word of the Lord, if you would respond with thanks be to God. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that came, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they, they had heard he had done this, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And we're on there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a, a pretty big week, um, not only because it's the beginning of a new year, but a pretty big week for my family and I as well. Uh, we're expecting uh, the birth of our second child in a couple of months. So Sarah, my wife, is, is about 20 weeks pregnant, so we get to find out the gender of the baby this week. Um, and I remember when uh, a couple years back when we were finding out the gender of, of our daughter Isabel at the time, we found out that she was a girl. And I had all these romanticized thoughts and ideas and feelings of what it would be like to be the father of a daughter. I had pictured the, the age-old... Um, mantra of daddy's little girl. I had envisioned uh, going on like these one-on-one dates with her when she was old enough to, to teach her what it's like to go on dates and to teach her uh, how a man should treat her. I had all these uh, images of, of, of a beautiful young daughter on my phone and, and all these things. And to, to a certain extent, a lot of these things have come true. Uh, but I also didn't anticipate or expect uh, the, the sleepless nights the, the countless diapers that we had to change, the irrational outbursts and things. Um, so needless to say, as, as we approach the gender reveal this week, I'm, I'm going in with a little more humility. Um, 
But I share that to say that there, there was a lot of anticipation. There was a lot of expectation of what I thought it would be like to have a child and to have a daughter. And while some of those expectations come true, a lot of them were unforeseen, or a lot of them didn't come true. And I was kind of met with this sobering reality of what it was like to have my expectations either fall short or be too high. And to a certain extent, the passage that we read today is a lot like what the crowds and what the people in Jerusalem uh, had placed on Jesus, these expectations, this king of Israel that they thought he was going to be. So this is the, the, the name, the, the, the title that we'll investigate a little bit more about today, and we'll look at it in three different ways. Who was the king that was anticipated, and what were the expectations that surrounded that? Who was the king that was actually received, and the reactions of the crowd? And what was, who was the king realized? Who really was this king? So the king anticipated, the king received, and the king realized. So first, we'll, we'll start with a king anticipated. Uh, to place this passage in a little bit more of a context, we read in the first couple of verses there that crowds were, were beginning to accumulate because they had heard that Jesus has, had done this wonderful sign. And the sign that they're referring to happened in the chapter previously to this is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and you can imagine the, the sort of buzz uh, that had that created throughout the city that a dead man, stone cold dead, had come back to life. And it was all because of this one man named Jesus. Uh, also concurring at the same time is the Jewish holiday of Passover. Probably the, the biggest uh, holiday uh, practiced by the Jews at the time. And as you may remember from uh, your Old Testament uh, readings and, and classes in Sunday school, the Passover was a celebration of the Jews commemorating their exodus out of Egypt, where the 10th the plague uh, that God had placed on Egypt and, and Pharaoh, uh, the slaying of the firstborn, that the Jews were saved by the Spirit passing over whose ever door was, was strayed with this, the blood of the Lamb. So they celebrate this every year. It was one of the biggest celebrations that they had. So in combination with Passover happening, in combination with uh, the, the rumors and the news that Jesus had raised somebody back to life from the dead had kind of created this perfect storm that we see in this setting today. The, the city is, is abuzz, and, and they're eagerly awaiting the man responsible for this. Uh, Jerusalem, that would probably normally hold around 50,000 people, is, is probably packed to about more than double that, 120,000 people, as some commentators had uh, estimated. There's a palpable energy. But why is this significant? Why... Why is this important to them? Uh, the Jews are currently under the occupation of Rome. And they are no strangers to being under the occupation of other countries. Uh, they've been exchanged from hand to hand by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Romans. So you'd imagine that a, a group of people like this would actually be used to being under control of somebody else uh, by different ruling regimes. And, and many of them probably were. But the silver lining that they had always held and remembered, the ace in the hole that they always had, was this coming Messiah, this coming King of Israel that would one day come to overthrow all oppression, all suffering, and establish their own sovereign nation. That this king would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that God had promised through Abraham in the book of Genesis, saying that your offspring, your people, will outnumber the stars. And this king would also fulfill the Davidic covenant through David, saying that I will establish a new king, a new sovereign nation that will flourish throughout all eternity 
through this line. And so, when they hear Jesus having performed this miracle, and when they see him riding on, the, on, on a donkey in the city, as was prophesied in Zechariah 9, and as we had quoted in, um, in our call to worship this morning, you can't blame them, but to think, this is it. This is the one. This is the king that is going to, as Zechariah 9 says, he will cut off the char- chariot from Ephraim on a war horse. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall seek peace throughout the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This king of Israel will be the exact king that we're looking for that will help us overthrow Rome and help us be our own sovereign nation now. God had promised them that someone would come and deliver them. Deliver them from oppression, establish Israel, and and make it a great nation. And so as the people are are witnessing the miracles that Jesus did all throughout the Gospel of John and, and finally culminated in this uh, miracle in raising Lazarus, they lay down their palm branches, as we see in verse 13, and they cry, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Palm branches were a, a national symbol, a national Jewish symbol of, of victory over war. So you can see the connotations that the Jews are placing in their minds as they see Jesus coming to the city. They were ready, right then and there, to crown Jesus King of Israel city is packed with excitement, with tension, with energy. And we'll pause here to look at some of the real things that this may reflect on us even today, right now. This human expectation of rescue, of deliverance, of justice, of flourishing. And I want to ask us, if, if God were to enter into the picture of our own lives, what would it look like for our lives to be delivered for our lives to be freed from oppression, from stress, for our lives to be flourishing as we might see fit. Would that mean that he would come and pay off all of your debt? If you're a a student with a ton of student loans or in credit card debt, would he pay off your mortgage? Would he give you that job that you interviewed for last week or that program that you had been eagerly seeking for? Would Mr. or Miss Wright just fall on your lap? Would your children get admitted to the right schools, the right programs, get into the right colleges, become the, the good civilians that you imagine them to be? And would, you, would he just whisk you away from all the anxiety that you face in your life, the things that keep you up at night, the things that, that give you that, that one last thing as you're lying in bed as you can't fall asleep? What would it look like for God to not only enter into your life but offer deliverance offer flourishing. Us, and like the Jews at the time, we have many different expectations of what that looks like. And we have many different excitements, but also fears of what that might look like in our lives. Now, I'm not trying to minimize all these expectations that we might have, because these are all good things that God would want for us. But the reality is that we don't actually come, these things don't come to fruition a lot of the times when we want them to. So I ask again, what does it look like for God to deliver and free us in our lives? And how might that be different from the ways that he actually does? And when he does do these things, how do we respond to those things? And that response is what will move us into the next point of what was the the king that was actually received and the reactions of the crowd that we find in this text. 
We'll investigate three different groups of response, and we'll actually kind of, again, reflect on how that will uh, show, give us a mirror into our own hearts and lives. First, we'll look at the reaction of the Pharisees. If you read again with me, starting from the beginning of the, the passage printed there, verses 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only in count of him, but also to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. So the chief priests had made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Fast forwarding all the way down to verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Um, we're no stranger now uh, to, to know that all throughout the Gospels, there's been a ton of friction between Jesus and, and the Pharisees. Uh, they're always trying to test him, to sabotage him, uh, to trick him, to discredit him, anything that they can. And so how do we see them responding to Jesus in this final miracle before his, his passion uh, and, and this fanfare that he receives into the city? After hearing this, they not only planned to kill Jesus, but they planned to kill the man that he resurrected. Now, resurrection in itself was not sort of like this magical voodoo concept that the, that the Pharisees didn't believe in. Resurrection was actually a very orthodox Jewish theology. Like, they believed in the end times and things being resurrected again. But the fact that they wanted to not only kill the person that was resurrected, but the source of it shows you the very irrational nature and hostility they have towards Jesus. Resurrection, this concept and this thing that they had been longing for all their lives is happening right before their eyes, and yet they wanted to, to put it to death. As one commentator wrote, the Pharisees were more concerned on practicing Jewish orthodoxy in the means of emphasizing God's holiness. And Jesus, while he wouldn't have foregone all of the orthodoxy, was more emphasizing God's compassion. While the Pharisees were trying to measure up their own holiness compared to others, Jesus was more concerned about being compassionate and merciful towards others because all are sinners in, in, the, in the eyes of God. And so to, to the Pharisees, Jesus didn't fit their mold. Jesus was allowing unholy people into what was to be a holy kingdom. And so, so they want to put him to death. And the exaggeration that we see there in verse 19 is that the Pharisees think the world is going after him. We have to do something about this. We have, to, we have to cut this off before this threat gets any bigger. And so we pause here for a bit and to say, in what ways do we find ourselves hostile and even combatant towards the will of God in our own lives? Have we find ourselves telling spouses, friends, family members, strangers, enemies, look, it's, it's, it's my way or the highway. Like, if you don't see things my way, then, then that's fine. I'll just do it myself and I'll just cut you off from, from whatever it is that I'm doing. Do we say those things to God, about God? God, I understand that you're trying to do something great here, but it doesn't fit my five-year, ten-year plan. I'm just going to go my way right now. What are the ways that we might be a little bit hostile or even combatant towards the living God? We'll move on to the reaction of the various crowds that we see. Um, verse 11 says, Because on the account of, of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Continuing on in verse 12, The next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took the palm, palm branches and they cried, Hosanna. 
And, and lastly, in, in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard what he had done and this sign, this sign that he, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, some commentators have noticed that there are two different crowds here, but for the purpose of the reaction, we'll, we'll look at the crowd as one kind of big group. Uh, there was uh, a small crowd that had seen Jesus actually perform this miracle. Like they had visibly seen with their own eyes that Lazarus came back from the dead. And so they're the ones spreading this news, this hype of, of, of Jesus having done this miracle. And so you can imagine their excitement, their, imagine their awe and their desire to want to just tell everybody that, they're new, that, that, that they knew about this. Um, this is something that we can probably attune to ourselves. Like if someone had discovered a cure for cancer, a cure for AIDS. If we had discovered the cure for cancer or AIDS, we would want to tell the world about it. Uh, in my previous church up in Boston, there was uh, a gentleman by the name, I'll, I'll call him Rob, um, who was with the church for a while, and, and for a long time, he was, he was homeless. Uh, he was a military veteran that after he had come back from a, a couple physical disabilities, he came back to the city, and there just wasn't anything for him to be able to do to be able to flourish as, as a, re, a regular civilian in society. And so he became homeless, and he, he kind of resorted to a lot of panhandling and, and, and begging for change on the streets. And for a long time, he was doing, uh, doing it, trying to support his, his two sisters and his niece. And, and we as a church, he, for whatever reason, he kept coming to our church, and, and we were trying to support him as best as we can. And the one thing that he was, was striving for was to not only gain an apartment somewhere to live, but an apartment big enough to, to be able to house his sisters and his niece. Um, so it was uh, a year, two-year-long battle trying to work with uh, the VA and, and a bunch of these different entities of, of giving Rob a place to live. Uh, he had saved up whatever he could just from gaining coins and, and a couple dollars on the street every now and again. And that one day came where he came to us with a signed lease for a two-bedroom apartment that could house himself and, and his sisters and his niece. And you can imagine the immense sense of joy, of, of expectation being finally met. And the man was in tears. I remember the, the day that he came into the office, the church office, it was in the middle of the afternoon. He came bursting in, and he just was waving his, his lease around in tears. The very next Sunday, he, would, he brought the lease and he would be showing all the deacons and the people that were involved in this process of finding the home with him. And in his reaction, we can see the, the joy and the anticipation and uh, the desire to spread that goodness, that news to, to those around us who might want to hear, who are involved. And so the crowds are res responding in a very similar way. They see this immense incredible miracle that just happened before their eyes, and they want to spread the good news. They want to spread the joy of what they have seen. And so this, this reaction spreads to larger crowds, and they're buying into the hype. They may not, they may not have witnessed Lazarus's resurrection firsthand, but they're like, they hear it. They, they, they know that other people have seen it firsthand, so they're like, okay, we're in. We believe this as well. And so all this culminates into them laying down palm branches, wanting to crown Jesus on the spot. Uh, but a couple days later, what do we see as we confessed in our confession this morning is that one day they were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. You are our king. And a couple days later, they were saying, crucify him. Kill him. There was something missing between 
that miracle that had happened, the hype that was surrounding Jesus coming into the city and on the ultimate day of his crucifixion. A level of fickleness, a level of something not as steadfast as we may have wanted. So I ask us, how are we fickle towards God? Do we find ourselves only remembering God in times of trouble and praying and crying out to him? And how do we praise and glorify God in the mundane, in the ordinary? When good things happen in our lives, who do we give the credit to? How is our perception of God reliant on his character and not just the things that he does for us? How do we rest on the steadfastness that is God? And how does, that, how does that oppose our own fickleness as human beings? Lastly, we'll look at the reaction of the disciples. Verses 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Um, in what we might expect to be a very promising and a uplifting reaction to Jesus' coming, we also find a similar disappointment to the Pharisees and the crowds. The, the disciples didn't know anything about what was going on as well. Uh, Jim read earlier for us in the service from, from John 4, uh, the, the narrative of, of Christ overturning the tables of the temple, saying that I will rebuild the temple in three days. And, and they didn't know what this meant until after Jesus' death what those three days signified. So here, very similarly, uh, they, they only remember these things only about after his death. So Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, the people that had spent every waking moment with him the last three years prior to this, learning everything about him, living life with him, eating meals with him, listening to his teaching, being his very disciples, his mentees, even they didn't know that the true king of Israel had come and what that actually meant. And so I ask us, what, what are ways in which we are oblivious to the things that God is doing in our lives? Have we been blind to the way that God may be working in our lives or in the circumstances around us because we have our own certain ideas or agenda of how we think God should work? And are we expecting, expecting him to come in a very certain way? When God enters into our life, it's not just a matter of whether we will spawn, respond, but how we will respond. What are our current expectations of God? What do we expect God to do if he were to deliver us? And how do we actually respond when he actually does work in our lives? As we move on to this last point of the king realized, I know a lot of these questions, a lot of these thoughts, and these tugs at our heart may seem very disparaging, a little discouraging, and frankly, it is for me as well, as I think about the ways that I'm hostile, that I'm fickle, that I'm oblivious to the ways that God is working in our lives, but I want to turn to the king that is actually realized, the reality of this king to give us hope, to give us joy, to turn around these feelings that we may be having in our hearts. What the disciples wanted, what the crowds wanted, and even to a very real degree, what the Pharisees wanted was the king of Israel that was promised from of old, the Messiah, the true king from the line of David, the one to come and save and deliver them 
in mighty fashion. Everyone failed to see that their definition of, of glory and of overthrowing was not actually what they had expected. The hype, the fanfare, the long-anticipated king who would break the bow, who would come and overthrow Rome and all the oppressors, actually came on a donkey, a peaceful, humble animal, as opposed to uh, a bucking bronco. The king who was to be revered, praised, and worshipped, the ones that they were laying palm branches for in signs of victory, wasn't coming down in the same manner of glory that they had expected. Time and time again, the book of John uses this phrase and this idea that the hour of the Son has not yet come. That the Son, the hour of, of Him to be glorified has not yet come. And finally, this hour has come in Jesus' entry in Jerusalem. The only other times that this phrase, King of Israel or King of the Jews, is mentioned throughout the Gospel, if you read with me, in Matthew 27, during his trial, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. And later on in that, in that chapter, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will, we will believe in him. Not through coercive force, but humiliating death. When the crowds were saying, Hosanna one day and crucify him a couple days later, they chose a murderer, Barabbas, over this humble king. This king realizes that the way to glory is not up, but down. He shatters all expectations that the way to eternal life is by dying to himself and for others. The one who is stripped and beaten and tortured and hung on a cross to die not lifted up and coronated as we may have expected. So what happens as a result of this? God overthrows the paradigms of the self-righteous, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees got what they wanted in their plots to kill Jesus. He died. But he shows them, again, that the way to eternal life is through death, that his glory was through his humiliation, and that everlasting, fulfilling life was gained by sacrificing his. God institutes genuine life change from those who may have witnessed his miracles, has believed the hype of, about him, like in the crowds. But Lazarus was only the beginning. Jesus shows the wonder and the power of the king of Israel at his own resurrection. The resurrection that served from his own death, the only way to be coronated as the king of Israel. And lastly, God calls us and invites us into discipleship, into his life, to share communion with him, to share the intimate things of his heart, of his teachings for us, so that we, as we face the, the trials and tribulations of, of our own lives and circumstances, we might know the goodness of God and what he has overcome for us to enjoy it as well. So as we reflect on the crowds crying out, Hosanna, God, save us now. We reflect on the ways that he has. But maybe not in the ways that we have expected. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we're, we're expecting um, 
to, to know the gender of, of our coming baby this upcoming week. And it, it's, a very, um, it's a very tense time for us, for Sarah and I as well. Uh, if you were here for the Thanksgiving dinner, share, Sarah had shared uh, very courage, courageously and bravely that uh, we had, Sarah had suffered a, a miscarriage before coming, before moving to Pittsburgh about a couple months ago. And so as we await this baby, as we await the, the gender of this baby, there are just a lot of expectations, a lot of hopes, a lot of fears coming with uh, this, this child. And so in the many ways that we want this child to help us mend a lot of the brokenness and the pain from losing a child, um, we're probably not going to get that. There's still a lot of grief that comes from having lost one. But at the same time, we're met with this, the goodness of our Lord and Savior. And not only, he doesn't deliver us by just giving us another child, but he embraces us. He shows us that I know what it's like to lose a life. I know what it's like to feel pain. And I know what it's like to sit with you in it. And that's what he does. And so as, as Sarah and I are, are, are not only awaiting this child and, and thinking about the new year, we always find ourselves having to preach the gospel to ourselves in those moments. In those moments of expectations aren't always met. God doesn't always come in the ways that we might want or that we might see the most helpful or the most effective. But God does come. And we respond to him regardless. Maybe it's hostility. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's uh, just being plain oblivious to the things that he's doing. But what I wanted to encourage us as we enter into this new year, as we enter into different phases of life, different goals, different resolutions that we might have, whatever those expectations might be, is God in, those, in that picture for you? And what are the ways in which the gospel, this, this good news of hope, can offer you in, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of pain, but also in the midst of eager anticipation of, of big things happening for you in the future. How is God a part of that? And how do we as a church be a part of that for each other and for this city? So as we reflect on the crowd shouting, Hosanna, God, save us now. We stand on the privileged side of salvation to know that God has offered salvation now in the person of Jesus. And wherever you are, whether you're a long-standing member, whether you're somebody coming back home to visit, or maybe you're just somebody new altogether, we offer this person of Jesus that has offered that salvation now, indeed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you in the, in the midst of, of trial, in the midst of of praiseworthy things, of things good happening in our lives, that, Lord, your steadfast love endures forever. That though the circumstances and the context around us may dictate us to feel and act differently, Lord, you are unchanging. Your sovereign nature before the beginning of time has always been the same. And so as the calendar passes, as as the new year comes, as new goals and expectations and resolutions are made, may we do so remembering that, Lord, you are sovereign. That things don't always go as planned. And even when they do, 
Lord, you are responsible. You are able and you are present with us. And so we rest on the goodness of this King of Israel who came not to destroy and not to overthrow in malicious ways, but one who came humbly in the form of man riding on a donkey to offer salvation through death on a cross, through resurrection by showing us that the way to eternal life is to die to ourselves and to believe in the goodness of the one true living God. So help us. Convict us of our hearts of it. Help us to repent of our sin and help us to move towards this compassionate Savior in Jesus. In his gracious name we pray. Amen.